chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. I'll read that, and then we'll, remaining, we'll remain standing for prayer. 1 John 4, beginning in verse 15, John says, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm like, I I gave you the right reference. I gave you the wrong references. We're going to read verses 13 through 15. Okay, We're we're, we're reading next week's text, which I haven't studied yet. So 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. Hereby know we, that's much more comfortable. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. May God bless his word. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you again for the privilege of being able to worship you tonight, and to study your word, to sing your praises, to give, and just to be with God's people. And we're so grateful. Uh, Lord, thank you for this morning's fellowship and service. And we pray tonight uh, that you would bless everything. Again, we lift up to you, Mr. Kerr, Pat Sonino. Uh, Lord, we also pray. Um, we also tr- just pray for our whole uh, congregation, uh, Ethan especially. We also pray for Joanne Tomkowitz, Ed Carpenter Healing, and... and um, Lord, we pray that you would minister in each situation. And we pray for each of these people that you would return them to us as soon as possible. And now we pray that you would magnify yourself through your word. And we'll thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening. Please take your Bibles. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. Tonight we are in part 40 of our series in 1 John. And that brings us to chapter 4 and verse 13, not verse 17. Verse 13, 14, and 15. Tonight, let me read the text again. John says, Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. Tonight's message is dwelling in us. Let's pray again. Father, bless us now as we open your word. Illuminate our minds. May our hearts rejoice tonight, those of us that are saved, because we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us. Those that have not experienced regeneration, the new birth, Uh, the necessity uh, in order to have the Spirit of God dwelling within them, we pray that that they would be saved as well, that they would be regenerated, born again. We ask your blessing tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to again direct your attention to verse 13. It starts off very similar to the way he's been saying these things, especially this word, over and over again. He says, Hereby... Know we. We know. You know, the Christian can say we know. We don't merely hope 
that we are saved. We don't merely hope that we will make it to heaven. We can say we know. This is such an amazing truth that is drilled home over and over again. I remember as a young Christian, and we're going to get to this. Chapter 5 is the last chapter, and one of the last verses is one of the first verses that jumped out at me as a, a young boy who was religious, but not born again. And this verse, uh, verses 1 John 5, 11, this is the record that God has given to us eternal life. God has given us heaven. And this life is in, not a church, this life is in His Son. He that has the Son has life. He that hath not the Son of God does not have life. And then he says this, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, which is exactly what he's saying here tonight. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know. Know. Not hope. That you might know that you have eternal life. And the man that was presenting the gospel to me, because that was a conundrum to me. I remember being taught over and over again, nobody can say that they know. That was called, in my mind, that was the sin of presumption. And this man is saying, wait a minute, what does the Bible say? I've told you time and time again, John Caputo, when he witnessed to me, uh, presenting the gospel over a period of many months, would drive me crazy with his... In fact, my plan is to videotape my testimony, and I actually have an audio of John Caputo saying... Steve, don't, don't take my word for it. Let's see what the Bible says. And I, I had him say that like four times into the microphone, and I have it recorded. It's on file, and I'm, I'm going to use that uh, because he said it so many times. He said, Steve, don't take my word for it. Let's see what the Bible says. He was so consistent with that. And yet, when I would go to my religious leaders, one of them said, well, the church teaches. The other one said, well, I think. And here's the point. The Christian, hereby we know. If you're born again, God wants you to know. He wants that to be your approach. Not only is he not saying it's it's he's not saying it's wrong to say you know, he's writing so that you will know that you have eternal. I can't wait to preach that text in first John five. We can't get there soon enough. But it's still we still got one of these I we knows. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us. How? How do we know? Because He hath given us of His Spirit. Then he goes back to this, his same statement that he started off in 1 John, that he started off in, in the Gospel of John. We have seen and do testify. Remember he was saying, that which we have seen, that which we have handled of the word of life. He was one of the eyewitnesses. He's referring to those that saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. We have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Then verse 15, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God. This is not just merely mental assent. This is acknowledging the person of the incarnate Jesus Christ. And whoever confesses that, God dwells in him and he in God. Now it goes back to verse 13. 
The knowledge comes because He has given us His Spirit. So we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit tonight. Because God is telling us, I'm dwelling in you. And if you are a believer, God dwells in you. So we're going to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When, when God saves a soul, there are several things that take place that are a supernatural work that God does. In fact, there's more than just four, but the key things that the Holy Spirit's involvement in our salvation, first, He regenerates us. You know what it means to regenerate? It means to give life. And in fact, when you go to the several times Peter mentions it, John and John 3 relates to the words of the Lord, this idea of being born again, that's what that is. That's what regeneration is. It is being given life. Now, if you are born again, that means you are regenerated. And what did Peter say? Being born again, not by corruptible seed, but by the Word of God. I hope you're born again tonight. If you are, then you've been regenerated. And now, and this is what we're going to focus on tonight, second thing the Spirit of God does is He indwells you. Again, look at verse 13. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us, because He hath given of us His Spirit. So He indwells us. He baptizes us. Not, now don't be thinking about the water baptism. That's a separate thing. The word baptize comes from a Greek word which literally means to place into. To, to immerse into something. And when you got saved, you were taken out of the world. You became part of the the church, a called out one, and you were placed into the body of Christ, that work done by the Holy Spirit is a supernatural transaction. And it literally happens to people where you are baptized by the Spirit of God. You're placed into the body of Christ. Then finally, you are sealed with the Spirit of promise. So we'll talk about some of these things, but I want to really focus tonight on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is what John is talking about here in verse 13. And in order to do that, I want you to take your Bibles and go back to John chapter 7 with me. Keep your place here, marker, finger or something, so we can come back to 1 John 4. I want you to look at John chapter 7. If you've been following, those of you that are online, if you've been following our services, or one of the things you'll notice is we uh, encourage you to read your Bible, and we we actually open the Bible, and uh, we encourage people to follow along. In many churches, nobody even brings their Bible to church. Um, We encourage it, because how else are you going to keep the preacher in line if you're not making sure what he says lines up with the Scripture? We actually encourage people to do that. Some churches, I guess they'd be offended. You need to do that. So look at John chapter 7 and verse 37. John 7, verse 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me. So he just gives this picture as if he's water. And he is the living water. He says, if anyone thirsts, come and drink. And then he clearly, immediately identifies what he's talking about. He that believeth on me. When you and I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, 
We are drinking from the well that will never run dry. We are tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. So he that believeth on me as the scripture hath said. That's an interesting phrase. It's not an unusual phrase, is it? You and I see that a lot. Here's the difference. Most of the time when this is in the New Testament, we know what he's talking about. We know the Old Testament verse. Sometimes it's not exactly like the King James translation because sometimes he's quoting from the Pentateuch. Uh, sometimes he's quoting from a different religion. <laughs> a translation. Language is what I'm looking for. Language. But please understand. And that, by the way, there's this, this notion out there um, that every single word, the wording of the King James is unique. And it's the only thing that's inspired by God. And the translators did not believe that. Please understand that. And right here, here's an interesting point. Jesus is obviously quoting from another scripture, an Old Testament scripture, but we're not sure which one. If you type, if you type, you quote these words, you take these words of Jesus, you can do this online, you can do this on a computer program, and you take the exact words that he's saying, and you type that in your Bible, there'll only be one verse that comes up. And it's this verse. We don't know. We're not sure. There's several several verses that he could be alluding to. Obviously, he's he's quoting a different translation of it, which, which should bring a major crisis to some people, but to us that understand how God has given us His Word, it's not a problem. But this exact phrasing is not found in the Old Testament, especially this, this statement, out of his belly. Uh, it, let me give you some of the other verses. And some of these could be the ones he's referring to, depending on which text, which translation he's using. Uh, but all these verses in the Old Testament seem to allude to what Jesus is talking about. Isaiah 35, 6. Then shall the lame man leap as, a, as an heart, and the tongue of the, the dumb sing. For in the wilderness shall waters break out and streams in the desert. Vague, but maybe that's it. Isaiah 44.3 I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. Okay, maybe maybe that's it. Isaiah 55.1 Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. All right, it's inviting us to come and drink. All right. Isaiah 12, 3, I'm going back now. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Okay? And then there's two verses in Zechariah. I won't repeat them, but... The phrase that Jesus says here in in John 7, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, uh, is really an allusion to the receptacles that were around springs and out of which great quantities of water would flow by pipes. And so the, the figure points to God's supply, spiritual supply, that comes when you and I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's Jesus saying? Go back again. Uh, if you're not in John 7, I think you are. Verse 38, He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly 
shall flow rivers of living water. And then he, then John clarifies, adds his comments. It should be in parentheses in, in your Bible there, verse 39. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. Did you hear that? They which believe on him should receive. This is one of the clearest texts that tells us that believers, well, there's going to be a bunch more, but that when you and I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we get His Spirit. What did John say in 1 John 4.13? Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. If you have become a believer, if you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been regenerated, you've been born again, you have the Spirit of God. Understand that. Listen to some of these verses. Romans 8, verse 9. But ye are, uh, Paul says, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. So he's writing to people, assuming they're Christians. And he says, You're not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Whoa. See, not everybody has the Spirit of God. You have to be born again in order for the Spirit of God to dwell in you. You have to believe. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation. But, here's the important thing, at that moment of belief, is passed from death unto life. It's an immediate transaction that happens when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a continual thing. It's when you understand your need for salvation, the Spirit of God convicts you of your need for a Savior. You understand that Jesus Christ died in your place, bore His sin, your sin on His body. You repent of your sins, you believe on the Lord, and you get the Spirit of God. Remember this morning we sang, once for all. Not once in a while for all. (laughs) Once for all. That's how God's salvation works. And Paul, again, in this verse... He says, assuming the Spirit of God dwells in you, and if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. That's why, remember, go back to, I'm getting ahead of myself, but First John 5, he that hath the Son has what? Life. And we learn here, also has the Spirit. He that has not the Son of God doesn't have life, and also doesn't have the Spirit. Uh, Romans 8, same chapter, verse 16. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So when God's Spirit is in you, there becomes evidence. And this is something John has pointed out and is bringing out in his text here in this this, this epistle, is the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit that bears witness that we are the children of God. So you ask, so I'm supposed to feel the Holy Spirit? We need to be careful of that because there's so many people that attribute the ministry of the Holy Spirit to their feelings. 
Now, in Galatians, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Did I fit them in? I think I got them all with that. Out of order. Um, but, you know, that those are, those are fruits of the Spirit. And, and when you and I have the Spirit of God, we begin to see a work in us. But please do not limit the Spirit of God to what's going on with your emotions. Because they're not connected. Sometimes you and I will, will feel horrible. And too many times, Christians are led to believe that when they're having a really good day and they feel good, it's the Spirit of God in them just making them happy. And that when they're not feeling good, the Spirit must have left them. <laughs> they do not understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Please understand. Uh, when somebody says, well, what do I feel? That's not, when John says, and, and he relates this in many ways. Uh, in fact, I just read, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. God produces fruit in us that enables us to see, for example, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Folks, these are all things that become evident in our lives. Love. When you first got saved, God should have put within you a love, especially for the brethren. Remember Jesus said, that's how you'll know. That's how the world will know that you're my disciples, i.e. that you're my children. Your love one for another. It is an amazing thing that you and I, if, if you've been saved for any length of time, there have been people in your life that have been hard to love. Right? Nobody's, nobody's committing. They're all just looking. I don't want to commit. <laughs> there have been people that have been hard to love. But you've been able to love them through Christ, haven't you? It's an amazing thing. We see it here in our church all the time. You know, and in church, you get people, you know, different people's personalities clash with different people. And so somebody might naturally not, you know, pick out a certain person because their temperament's different than their temperament. And Boy, this person really rubs me wrong and, and that... But it's amazing how God, when he saves us, gives us the ability to love people that we might not pick as friends if, it weren't, if we were outside of Christ. What an amazing thing. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy. Joy, folks. Joy is something that God gives that is not based on our circumstances. Sometimes we mistake joy for just happiness, good feelings. God can give us joy in the midst of hardship. I'll never forget Horatio Spafford, who lost his three of his daughters, I believe, or maybe four, in a in a uh, accident at sea. His wife was with his children going on holiday, which is what they would say, holiday, and their their ship was hit. And the mom escaped, went to England, where they were going to go see D.L. Moody who was a friend of Horatio Spafford's, she, she sent him a, um, a, a wire. Is that what they call that back then? A, a wire. What is it? Telegram. Thank you. And it said something like, saved alone. And so he took the next ship, started going, and he had the captain tell him when they were at the spot on the sea where the ship went down and his daughters, he lost his daughters. And he stood out there on the bow 
as he as he was over that place, and he thought, you know, he was so. This was just probably weeks after he lost his family, his daughters, thinking of his precious girls, and he sat out there on the on the deck, and that's when God. I can only imagine the incredible despair that overwhelmed him. This man was not having good feelings. This man was not having happiness. But he had something that was able to sustain him so that he could say, and he would eventually write the song with these words that came to him. You know, and, and when, when um, trying to think of the, the first phrase. When peace like a river attendeth my way. That's the good part. When sorrows like sea billows roll, those are the bad times. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's joy, abiding contentment. He lost his precious daughters. But God gave a song that has ministered to so many people through the years. So do not mistake the ministry of the Holy Spirit with how you feel. Please do not. And if you're having a bad day, maybe even the day after you make a profession of faith, you come to Christ, you're born again, uh, you read it in in His Word, you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you had a mountaintop experience. In fact, I want to caution you. Because some people have very dramatic testimonies. Some people will will share. And and I know from pastoring that sometimes people might struggle with your testimony. Not because there's anything wrong with your testimony. But if they think that they need to have one that matches it. Someone would say, I felt this huge weight of sin. I could literally feel my sin. I'd walk around like this. It was so heavy on me. And then God saved me. And just like Pilgrim's Progress, literally, it fell off. I literally felt this huge weight lifting off and I cried for four weeks with thrill, you know, and I've I, not heard that dramatic of a testimony, but you know how they can get. And, so, you know, praise God, sometimes people might have that mountaintop experience when they get saved. But then the sad thing is then there's other people are here looking at that. Maybe somebody just got saved like I did. I remember getting saved, and I did not hear the hallelujah chorus. Oh, it would have been great. I got saved sitting on a weight bench at a spa in Westchester. And I didn't see any angels. And you know what I felt? This is the hardest part of all. I felt nothing. (gasps) Pastor Lyon's not saved! (laughs) You know? (laughs) That's how... See, we tend to... If you hear that, and if you have a dramatic testimony, praise the Lord. Please understand when you give it, though, that that's your testimony. It wasn't the feelings that because you had these feelings, this is what saved you. No. What saved you was you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you got the Spirit of God. But I didn't feel the Spirit of God come inside of me. 
Well, what does it feel like? Now, maybe somebody would come along. This could be another testimony. So I got saved. And my whole life, big, empty void. And the day I got saved, something filled me and I could feel it. I just, I felt something come in me. And I mean, it's there, I know. If, if you ever hear that, rejoice with that person, but do not mimic that person. You do not have, you, you, just because you, you know, again, salvation is not a feeling. It's not a feeling. It's you, you respond to the Bible. And, and folks, again, when I got saved, I didn't feel anything. I don't know if I was expecting to. Thankfully, the gospel was presented very clearly uh, so that I wasn't looking to feel anything. But over time, I began to see a change in my life. Began to have a desire for God's word. Remember the Bible says, A natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Their foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. I remember reading my Bible over and over again. Just went over my head. It's just words. I could kind of get the, the stories of the Bible there, but it, it, it did not, I, I didn't understand it. And then after I got saved, it began to make sense to me. And I believe that was the Spirit of God working. And many of you are shaking your head. John says this. We looked at this a few weeks ago. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them because... Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Who's he that is in the world? The God, small g, of this world, Satan. What's he saying? He's saying there's someone that's in you. Who's in you? God is in you. The Spirit of God dwells within you. In fact, that's the basis. When Paul writes to the church in Corinth, that's the basis in which he challenges them to holiness when they're involved in all kinds of sexual immorality. He says, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you. If you are born again, it's the first thing, the first work of the Spirit of God there, regeneration. Then the next thing is you are indwelled by the Spirit of God. If you're born again, the Spirit of God is in you. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. So he, we get regenerated by the Spirit of God, we get indwelt, we get baptized. We're not going to go into that, that could take a whole, whole sermon. But in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 13, here's another thing. Connected to, notice all these things that happen are connected to when you and I first put our faith in Him. Remember, he that hears my word and believes on Him that sent me, has everlasting life, shall not come into condemnation, but at that moment is passed from death unto life. I was 17 years old when that happened to me. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 13. In whom ye also trusted, we're talking about faith here, belief, after that ye heard the word of truth, that's John 5 24, what I just quoted. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's how you get saved. In whom also that, after ye believed, ye were sealed with the spirit of promise. 
which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. Now verse 14 is very clear language that is even in use today. If you buy a house today, some people still call it earnest money. Money's money, right? I mean, is money, what's earnest? If there's earnest money, what is there, lazy money? What's, I don't get it, you know, what is that earnest money? Earnest money is what he's talking about here. Uh, Again, the earnest of our inheritance, literally think of this, it's a down payment. That's what it is. When you got saved and the Spirit of God took up residence in you, that is your guarantee, that is your down payment. Until the redemption of the purchased possession. That's our glorification, folks. That's when we get that's when we go to heaven and we receive our inheritance. That's when we are not only we've already been delivered from the punishment of sin, we will then be delivered from the very power of sin completely and the presence of sin. And we will receive all the inheritance that is laid up for us because of what Jesus did on Calvary. Now that earnest, the earnest of our inheritance, if you and I are going to buy a house, your down payment is a pretty big deal, you know. Uh, and we encourage people in, our, in, in the classes that we have, we have done, you want to give as big of a down payment. It's great if you have cash. But in our day, <laughs> having cash for a house, you know, it'd be great, wouldn't it? And maybe if Elon Musk were to send you a check, you could do that, you know. But in the meantime, you know, most of us have got to scrape and, and you know, we, we get that down payment. But that down payment is very important because that is the guarantee. You put that down payment. Until you put the down payment down, anybody can come in and, and, and make an offer and the house is not yours, right? But once you put that down payment, once you give the earnest money, it's interesting, it's, I, I never looked this up. Why do they call it earnest money? Well, it is earnest because it does something for you, right? As soon as it goes down there, you know, it secures your house. It secures whatever the possession is. That's your guarantee. And any problems you have from that point, so oh, I gave it down payment. I gave my earnest money. Well, guess what? That's what the Spirit of God is in you and I. That's our guarantee. Folks, one by one, unless something changes, the rapture or a terrorist attack on 8607 Westchester Pike right now, and we all go to heaven together, uh, which is okay by me, you know. But one by one, we're going to go to heaven. And some of us will probably be at someone else's. Some of us will be at other of us's funeral, you know, right? I know this is so depressing. But I want you to realize, folks, that if you're at my funeral or I'm at your funeral, you got the Spirit of God, it's guaranteed. It's guaranteed. I mean, it's, He's given us His Word. It's as good as done. You, are, you and I are sealed. It's one of the blessings. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is He seals us. Here's what Jesus said. He said, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, Neither shall any man pluck them out of my Father's hand. There's, some, there's a certain amount of security. There's something that happens that when you become a child of God, you are sealed. Folks, you cannot. If somebody asks you, 
Can the Holy Spirit ever be taken away from me? Please understand, it cannot happen. If you are born again, this whole idea of being sealed with the Spirit of God, you're in the Father's hand, no man can pluck you out. And by the way, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is very different than it was in the Old Testament. Please understand, if you get confused when you read your Old Testament, understand the Holy Spirit's ministry was different. Because the Holy Spirit would come upon people like Samson, David. The Spirit of God would come upon them for ministry and then the Spirit of God would leave. It doesn't mean it does not doesn't doesn't meant it does not mean that they lost their salvation. Now, if we could lose the Spirit of God today, we would lose our salvation because it's a different economy. In fact, remember when David sinned against Bathsheba against against Uriah with Bathsheba. And you remember in Psalm 51 when he prayed, he said, uh, take not thine Holy Spirit from me. You and I, now I have often, I love Psalm 51. It is a great confessional prayer. You know, if you want to pray to God, if you're feeling guilty about your sin, you go to Psalm 51. It's beautiful to just pray that. But when you get to that phrase, you don't need to say that. You don't need to say, take not the Holy Spirit from me, because that was an Old Testament context. Once he gives it, what does it say again? Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. What a blessing. And he seals us with that Spirit. So, finally, I want to close with this aspect of the filling of the Holy Spirit. So when we get saved, we are regenerated, we're indwelt, we're baptized, we're sealed. But then there's the idea of the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is an ongoing work. Uh, And I want to clarify some things. There's also two things we will not get into tonight that can be done only to a believer who has the Spirit of God, only to someone who has the Spirit of God dwelling within them. And that is we can quench the Spirit of God and we can grieve the Spirit of God because He dwells in us. Let's talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. We'll close with this. Paul said, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess. And by the way, the wherein is referring to the wine. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. When you you hear about this, in fact, I remember as a young Christian going to a church where the pastor likened, and he preached from this text that I quoted, Ephesians 5.18, and he likened it to a, a pitcher that was half full, and he challenged us to get all of the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. And, and it sounded like that's what the text was talking about, right? So we go up and say, how much of the Holy Spirit you got today? I'm about a quarter full. You know, <laughs> is, is that what we're going to say? Is that what he's talking about when he says be filled with the Spirit? Folks, when you get saved, you have all of the Holy Spirit that you'll ever get. And and you will always have all of the Spirit of God. So then what are we talking about? Filling of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit, think of it this way, it's referring to the control. And really the idea is not how much of the Holy Spirit do you have, But how much does the Holy Spirit have of you? I love the story of D.L. Moody. You know, D.L. Moody was a great preacher, but he was not educated at all. 
he was God used him in a mighty way, and uh, he was having a campaign in England, and an elderly pastor protested, and he said, "Why do we need this Mister Moody? He's uneducated, he's inexperienced. Who does he think he is anyway? Does he think he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit?" And a very wise young pastor stood up. He said, no, he doesn't think he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on Mr. Moody. <laughs> and I love that. That's the idea of the control of the Spirit of God. And so when, when Paul says, be filled with the Spirit, he's not saying, you need to get a fill up. And, and believe me, this, for those that are very emotionally inclined, we can run with this. Ah, oh, I, I need more of the Spirit of God today. I'm probably at 1%. You know, when you and I say that, we are giving the wrong impression. As if somehow God has not supplied us adequately. And God's up there saying, you're not getting any more. you got 100% of my Holy Spirit. Yield to Him. That's what He's challenging us to do. And that's what happens. Let me read to you. I'll close with this. This is a testimony that um, you may have heard of this lady. I might have even shared her testimony um, it's a gal by the name of Rosario Butterfield. She wrote a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She was interviewed. Uh, I think this a Christian magazine here. I think I got this from. And they asked her about this book that she came out with. Why would you consider yourself an unlikely convert? And she shared this. She said, I consider myself an atheist. Having rejected my religious childhood and what I perceived to be the superstitions and illogic of the historic Christian faith. I found Christians to be difficult. This was her uh, denomination, which was not a born-again preaching denomination. She said, I found Christians to be difficult, sour, fearful, and intellectually unengaged people. In addition, since the age of 28, I had lived in a monogamous lesbian relationships and politically supported LGBT causes. I co-authored Syracuse, Univers Syracuse University's first successful domestic partnership policy while working there as a professor of English and women's studies. Wow, someone like this got saved? She said, I was terrified to affiliate on any level with a worldview that called me, my life, my community, my scholarly interests, and my relationship sin. That is an important point. Because a lot of people we're witnessing to, folks... Get what she said? I was terrified to affiliate on any level with a worldview that called me, my life, my community, my scholarly interests, and my relationship sin. And we, we call certain things sin that some people would, would say, no, that's not sin. This is the way God made me. We'd say, no, he did not. And, and that automatically alienates us until someone is willing to embrace truth. And she was there. She said, in fact, she ended up meeting a man that was, I believe, a Presbyterian that was born again and living his faith. And um, she said, add to this that I was working on a book exposing the religious right from a lesbian feminist point of view. Remember, we've looked in the past during a series, um, Roadblocks to Faith, and I gave a lot of examples of people that set out to disprove Christianity she was working on a book. I love this. Exposing the religious right 
from the lesbian feminist point of view. Wow. By the way, if you ran into this lady in that condition, would you? And once you find out about her, you talk to her. Hey, what's your name? My name is um, my name is Rosario Butterfield. I'm working on a book, by the way. Would you even? Would you even start to try to witness to her? Would you think, oh, she's gone? I'm, there's no way I could reach her. Folks, people get saved. People get saved from all kinds of backgrounds. I approached the Bible with an agenda to tear it down because I firmly believed that it was threatening, dangerous, and irrational. And there's a lot of people at that point. God has to open their eyes. But when I came to Christ, I experienced what 19th century Scottish theologian Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. That's an interesting phrase that we may pursue down the road another time that talks about the work of the Spirit of God, which is really powerful. She says, as my, uh, wait a minute. She says, at the time of my conversion, my lesbian identity and feelings did not vanish. As my union with Christ grew, the sanctification that it birthed put a wedge between my old self and my new one. In time, this contradiction exploded and I was able to claim identity in Christ alone. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. At the time of my conversion, my lesbian identity and feelings did not vanish. By the way, if salvation was how you feel, can you imagine somebody that with, the, with that background, they get saved and their feelings don't change? I probably don't have the Spirit of God. See, that's why you, you understand, folks, that, that it's not a feeling. At the time of my conversion, my lesbian identity and feelings did not vanish. As my union with Christ grew... The sanctification that it birthed put a wedge between my old self and my new one. In time, this contradiction exploded and I was able to claim identity in Christ alone. I love that. So, you have the Spirit of God? I'm not asking you, how does it feel? Mm -mm. If you have the Spirit of God, you are His. He is dwelling in you. Let's just savor that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the promise of your Spirit. Thank you for the knowledge that we can say that we know we are saved, that we know we're going to heaven, that we know the Spirit of God is within us. Father, I pray that you'd help those that are wrestling with the matters of salvation, the new birth, regeneration, the Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that uh, for those that need conviction of sin, repentance, and salvation, that the new birth would be theirs. The Spirit of God would dwell in them. And we ask your blessing. Father, help us as believers, Spirit-filled believers, to walk in the Spirit, to, to be under the control of the Spirit of God who dwells in us. Thank you for your provision in this way. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.